Hey everyone, this is Dustin from the future. And before we begin, we just wanted to let you know that due to technical issues, we had to record this episode on two different days, so the audio is going to shift in places. Thanks for bearing with us. Let's begin. Welcome to The Alexander Standard. Today's episode, Introduction. Welcome to the Alexander Standard, where we rank the successors of Alexander the Great from Perdiccas to Cleopatra VII. Uh, my name is Dustin. My name is Meredith. Today is numero uno, the primer, the first episode. So today we'll be introducing ourselves in a bit more detail. Then we'll talk about our motivations for the show and explaining our ranking system, that is, what our criteria is going to be and how we're going to be awarding points. Lastly, before we get to the heirs of Alexander the Great, we'll establish some groundwork and give you a brief background of Greek and Macedonian history so that we can properly understand the world in which Alexander and his successors lived. So, a little bit about us. As already said, my name's Dustin. Right now, I'm currently finishing up a PhD in Ancient Mediterranean Studies, and although I primarily focus on Roman history, I also really love Greek history, as well as the history of the Hellenistic world, which is the period following Alexander the Great's death, which I will totally explain in a little bit. I'll be the guide for a lot of our discussion, providing the main narrative and much of the historical facts for our subject matter. Meredith, who are you? I am your wife. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, I'm Meredith. So we both met when we were studying history, um, me and my undergrad and him getting his master's. I predominantly focus on the Tudor and Stuart period of history. So I'm here with you, um, our audience, to learn more about it, ask questions that might be coming across all our minds. And I like to think that when it comes to this period of history, I know just enough to be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this came from conversations we would have. Um, it's one of the benefits of marrying another nerd, because whenever we watch historical movies or anything, inevitably one of us turns to the other one and just says, what's up about this? And then it just turns into a 30-minute conversation. <laughs> so we decided to put all that knowledge to good use, sort of, <laughs> and find an outlet for our our pontification, you know. <laughs> So the idea for this podcast comes from several places, and I'm going to just do a little bit of reading, dramatic reading, that I've prepared for this. All right. All right. That'll keep me from going off on tangents. Aside from our mutual love of history among Meredith and myself, history is full of wacky and interesting stories, and the ancient world is a perfect example of this. Just like any period of history, the ancient world is full of fascinating individuals, and one of the most interesting is, of course... Alexander the Great, who has fascinated scholars for over the last 2,000 years. After his death in 323 BCE, ambitious leaders and rulers throughout history have imitated, 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 yes. They poorly imitated. Oh, there you go. I don't know what that means, but we're going to go I with it. I like your poor pronunciation was like poor, oh, poor imitation. It was poor imitation of what I wrote. Mm -hmm. Nice. They've imitated and compared themselves to Alexander, looking at him as the idealized archetype of the larger-than-life, unstoppable, charismatic military genius and conqueror. You know, when I wrote that, 
For some reason, at that moment, I could not find any examples of people emulating Alexander. Over the course of the past week, I have found, I, I just keep coming across random examples. I was listening to a podcast today, and there was someone that, like, one of their middle names was Alexander, and they would sometimes sign that to try and kind of, like, hearken to it. But, like, mm. this person themselves was kind of, like, a nobody. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it didn't really matter. I mean, I was working on stuff for, you know, Roman history, mm -hmm. but I found, you know, examples of Scipio Africanus yeah. and, of course, Pompey, who both emulated Alexander in some way. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, Caesar. I listened oh, to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Mm -hmm. Crying at the statue of Alexander. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, you don't know that, that story? No. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> Caesar, when he was like um, a low ranking official in Spain early uh -huh. in his career, he came across. So the story goes, mm. came across a statue of Alexander the Great and he just fell to his knees weeping because by the time Alexander was his age, that is like 30, he had conquered the known world and Caesar was just like a low level administrator in Spain. And I, then and what I'm happened? I'm 32, so like what does that say? I'm 37, think about how I feel. Oh, God. My joints pop all the time. <laughs> okay. Um, so people are looking up to Alexander. Now back yeah. to my, you know, prepared speech. And who could blame them? Alexander had taken a largely obscure kingdom of hillbillies in Macedon, more on that later, defeated and conquered the Persians, and, however briefly, forged the largest empire the world had seen at that time. Case in point. Just by his personal charisma as a leader, Alexander compelled his soldiers to walk, to walk from Macedon all the way to Afghanistan and back again. We even know of a, well, of a couple of guys, or at least one person, who survived the whole campaign from start to finish and then popped up on the map later as like a mercenary general. Mm -hmm. You know where he popped up in? Afghanistan. No, North Africa. But that means he walked from Macedon to Afghanistan to back again, and then and I'll just keep going keep west going. to Carthage. Become so ingrained in the muscle memory, it was probably odder for him to not be walking somewhere. He's like, I just got to go. Where? I don't know. I, don't I just know. can't stay here. But you can't stay here. Now, of course, I just, I feel the itch of like meticulousness in my mind right now. I'm just like, of course, a lot of them had horses, but a lot of them didn't. Yeah. And they walked on Someone foot. Someone was walking. Somebody had to be. That being said, walking to Afghanistan and back again. Ah, yeah, it's totally understandable that subsequent kings and rulers throughout history would want to model themselves after young Alex. But this emulation was arguably at its strongest in the centuries immediately after he died in 323 BCE. Now, Meredith, before I go any further, do you know what BCE means? Let me, let me say that a little bit more condescendingly. I know. Hi, Meredith. Yeah. Do you know what BCE means? So, like, I know what it means. Yeah. But I don't know what it stands for. Okay, so do you know what BC is? I know, yeah, that, I mean, I know what it is. I know. I it's like how we get common. serious. Yeah, <laughs> dropping the voice. Yeah, I know it referred, well, not that it, in a lot of people think it stands for before Christ. It does. It, is that exactly? So that's what it stands for. Yeah. I know what you're thinking, though, mm -hmm. because it stands for before Christ, and that's absolutely how our mindset is. Yeah. You know, render it or uh, that's how our perception is skewed. But the the fact is, is like when we look at when they when scholars have looked at the chronology, they're pretty yeah. sure we're off by like six or seven years. So it's it means before Christ. Yeah. Absolutely. Even yeah. though that might give or take a, a few years. Yeah. Right. Now, how about CE? Oh, I'm sorry. How about AD? 
after death. No. I Dang thought it. I thought that for years. And it was only until I began to learn Latin. Okay. Uh, only after I, to, I started learning Latin. Okay. Take two. <laughs> only after I started learning Latin did I learn it means Anno Domini in the year of the Lord. Ah. Which just means after Christ was born. So BCE, on the other hand, and CE yeah. are the exact same, same thing. thing, but they take out the Christ part. Yeah. Not to say that they don't change the dating, but it's just, let's not base this on one religion's, you know. Yeah, let's not base all historical dates off of. Yeah, because yeah. if we were doing a podcast on Chinese history, B.C. and A.D. would just seem wacky. Yeah. Nevertheless, the conventions are helpful. B.C.E. just means before common era, mm. and C.E. means? Common era. <sighs> You're right. Yes. No, BCE, before Common Era, CE, Common Era. In the end of the day, the dates are exactly the same. That being said, back to the fun at hand, we thought it would be fun to go through all or most, at least, of the rulers after Alexander died and see how they did according to, drum roll please, Let's see if I can do it with the, with the mic picking it up, the Alexander Standard. Put some echo on that. Ooh. <laughs> I thought you were going to do like, all right. So at the same time, covering the successors of Alexander in the East allows us to shed some light on an area of history that sometimes gets overlooked. Alexander's death traditionally marks the beginning of what's called the Hellenistic Age, or period, or world, which lasts roughly from 323 to 31 or 30 BCE and includes, but is not limited to, the various kingdoms and states located in and around the eastern Mediterranean, parts of North Africa, such as Egypt, Egypt, uh, the Middle East, such as the old Persian Empire, and all the way to Afghanistan, even knocking on India and arguably China's door. There are even some statues in China that have been recovered that seem to look like Greek hoplites. Which is just cool to me. My my brain's just spinning on that tangent of like the whole like the lost legion. Oh yeah, I love that story. China. That might be a Patreon episode if we ever do a Patreon. If this picks up, we're totally doing a Patreon. Yeah. I've been telling you I've already got three different ideas for other podcasts to do. Okay. Yeah, so donate to our Patreon <laughs> whenever we get it set up. So now, although there are plenty of modern historians who have studied the Hellenistic world, it is also the case that after Alexander the Great died in, pop quiz, sorry, 323, <laughs> the popular focus starts to turn west towards the Roman Republic. Mm. And for good reason, by the 320s, <laughs> Rome is close to wrapping up their own conquest of Italy. And then over the course of the next 200 years, they'll gradually conquer the entire Mediterranean area, including many of those Hellenistic kingdoms that came after Alexander. But in the meantime, while the Romans are being awesome, a lot is happening in the Hellenistic world. So going over Alexander's successors gives us the opportunity also to shine some light on an area and historical period that perhaps doesn't get the attention it deserves. Because mm -hmm. honestly, with the exception of Cleopatra, I do not know any of these people. See, that's my point. And understandably, everyone just kind of skips over it. Looking forward to it. Here we go. So next, the format of this podcast and our method of ranking the successors of Alexander is inspired by other great podcasts, and we need to pay respects to them. Meredith 
would you care to explain these podcasts that inspired us? Yes. So we have taken our inspiration and hope to be accepted into the family of <laughs> um, the original Rex Factor, who rank all the kings and queens of England and Scotland. They're currently doing the consorts of England and then also Totalis Rankium, who did all the Western Roman emperors are currently doing the Byzantine Roman emperors. And they also have another show where they do the American presidents. So taking our cue and giving our thanks to them. I think you also mentioned that there's somebody who's doing um, French Kings and someone oh, who's yeah. doing the popes. There are a lot like there's the French Kings. There are, um, there is one on the popes. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been like hundreds of popes that's gonna be a lot be a good one so we're not at all coming up with this formula on our own no claims to originality no (laughs) so this is more of a homage (laughs) to these the greats who came before us but also uh, we we hope to kind of have the banter that we hear in a lot of other podcasts that we like Mm -hmm. like uh queen's podcast that's why we drank Mm -hmm. office ladies and then guy did the unknown i think yeah Now, before we jump into it, let's quickly go over our ranking system for the monarchs we cover. We're going to be using a point system. Each monarch is going to be ranked according to five categories, with 20 points in each category. Split evenly between Meredith and myself, totaling 100 possible points. The categories will be, and I'm going to put some echo on these, Aristea, Battle Prowess. Uh, Warfare was a constant factor in the Hellenistic world, and every respectable ruler had to be, or ought to have been, past tense, a talented general, because he died. A talented general (laughs) and a powerful warrior. There you go. So it's not necessarily, you know, limited to winning every battle, but rather how well you did in battle battle overall. Or even just how magnificent it is, because it it can be truly phenomenal, even Mm. in a loss. That's my thing. You know, I've always... Like especially some of the figures in the Hellenistic world, I have always been intrigued by how some of these generals act in the face of defeat. Mm-hmm. Because some of the best ones, I think, did not win all the time. Next category. Eutychia. Success, or good fortune. How well did you do as a ruler? Were you a complete idiot? Were you a master administrator? Did you begin your rule with a prosperous kingdom and leave behind a dumpster fire? Or did you take a trash heap of a kingdom and turn it into the well-oiled machine? That's all I got for that category. TBD. We're going to TB them Ds, yeah. Akon. Appearance. Not the rapper. You want to think more of where we're going to get the word icon. What's that pretty face look like? Do we know what that pretty face look like? You got any of them statues? How about them coins? Many Hellenistic monarchs have left behind a treasure trove of portraiture and sculptures, even some paintings and mosaics, and a lot of coins depicting their faces and likenesses. Now, this isn't a beauty contest. Rather, it's a question of what kind of imagery was created and left behind of a monarch or a ruler in question. I just realized I haven't been recording the whole time. (gasps) I'm joking. I'm just making sure. I just had to tease you. Oh, God. (laughs) Wouldn't that suck? I quit. I know, right? That'd I be it. I would quit. No, I That'd be it. I'd be like, this is a sign. It's not working. It's the fourth time. You didn't even hit the button. It's a sign. Yeah. Okay. Category four. Mania. Craziness. Yeah. So the ancient world was a strange place. Now, we are not here to make light of mental health. 
or to make light of people doing terrible things. And unfortunately, one of the constants of human history is we are just horrible to people. We are horrible to each other. We do horrible things. So we're not making light of any of that. But I also believe in the philosophy that we shouldn't sugarcoat or dance around these things. But we're also not going to be, you know, be gratuitous about it or insensitive. Nevertheless, some rulers were downright weird at times. Alexander himself is a great example. Killed his best friend in an accident. Um, not even an accident. No. He was just drunk. Oh. Yeah, and then his the next day all of his like advisors were like, It wasn't your fault. You're you couldn't help it. He's like, I'm a terrible friend. No. <laughs> no, you didn't do anything wrong. At least I still have my favorite horse. Right. Oh, don't tell him. Don't okay. Tell him. All right. So this category is for those Hellenistic monarchs that definitely raised an eyebrow. You know, when I wrote this, I remember I could Raising not think of... Raising your own eyebrow? I can raise my eyebrow. Mm. I can pull a Spock. Number five. Kronos. Time. Length. Okay. How long did a ma- monarch... Manarch? How long Manarch. did a monarch manage to stay on the throne? Other categories are absolutely subjective, but this is the only category determined by a formula, so to speak. You about to laugh already? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were remembering all the times we tried to, like, explain this to ourselves. But this is the only category determined by, oh yeah, by the formula. Many rulers didn't last that long, but others seemed to live forever. Alexander himself only reigned for 13 years before dying from complications related to being an idiot. More on that later. More on that. Since this is the Alexander standard, we've decided to score Monarch's reign based on Alexander's own reign. Meredith, I think you better explain this one. Do you remember? I think I'm going to try. All right. Um, For those that are familiar, we'll be using the method of Rex factor. So we're taking Alexander as the standard. Uh, So 13 years, and we are basically going to make that a multiple of 20. And then... um, so basically, do a mathematical look. We know what we're doing. <laughs> Everyone's uh, reign is going to be a percentage of his, and they'll get points accordingly. The first time we actually have to do it, I'll explain it in more detail because I'll be doing it. Well, I've got it written down here the way you then explain why it to you me. Let me do it. I want you to, to be an equal participant here. It basically, every year they reign, they're going to get 0.65 points. Yep. And yep. because that's the, if you spread out Alexander's 13 year reign over. Uh, or throughout 20, po- 20, 20 points. points yeah. yeah, if you break it down to 20 points, you get 0.65 per year. And so that's the standard. All right, bonus point. Catastrophe. Pretty self-explanatory, even for a Greek word. Deposed. As mentioned, the Hellenistic world was a violent place, and most rulers suffered violent deaths. In fact, it was a rarity for a Hellenistic monarch to die peacefully in their sleep. Therefore, if someone managed to hold on to the throne until their death and successfully avoid assassination or succumbing to a rebellion, we're willing to give them an extra point. All right. So we need to make one thing clear about these rankings. The points uh, we award don't matter. This is just for fun. Yep. So we're not trying to assert any sort of academic fact. No. No. All right. The last thing. Although we endeavor to uphold the highest podcast audio quality, our darling cat and executive producer, Charm, will inevitably chime in, probably over and over, and it's just not possible to cut out all of her contributions. So you might hear some meows. To be honest with you, I'm surprised she hasn't been talking more. 
Um, she talked during the sound check. She did, and she was like, that's it. That's all I got. Okay, let's dig in. To quote Toby Flinderson from season nine of The Office, your favorite season, which is a joke. That's you, a lie. Yeah, there you go. I would start at the beginning, but I think I need to go farther back. First, some terminology. Alexander's death, as we have said over and over, is traditionally marked as the beginning of the Hellenistic world from 323 to 31 BCE. But the term Hellenistic refers to the spread and influence of Greek or Hellenic culture kicked off because of Alexander's conquests. But we have to address that the words Greek and Greece aren't really accurate. The people we know as the Greeks more commonly called themselves Hellenes because they were from Hellas, mm. which we call Greece. Okay. Greek, Hellene, Greece, Hellas. Okay. The usage of the word Greek likely comes from the Romans. It's the Romans. Yes. Who, as the story goes, this is one of, like, one of the most reliable stories, who met one group of people we would call <laughs> Greeks, known as the Graeci or the Graioi, who were from Hellas because the Greeks spread through all, throughout the entire Mediterranean and especially colonized uh, the southern chunk of Italy. So the Romans will have met these Graioi from Hellas. And as is the, the way in the ancient world, you would very commonly introduce, when you would introduce yourself or meet someone new, you'd be like, hey, this is my name, but also this is where I'm from. And so you can, like, you can see how the scene would play out yeah. because it would be like, hey, we're, who are you guys? And like, I'm going to make up a we're Greek like name. Is like, I'm an... I'm Anaximander of the Graioi. This is my friend um, uh, uh, blah, 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 Lysimachus of the Graioi. Also from there. And then the Romans say, oh, this is Marcus from Rome. And I'm Lucius from Rome. All right, then fast forward, you know, later that day, they're like, who are those guys we were talking to again? We did, with the, 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 the Graioiki Koi? The, the Graiki? The Graiki. The Graiki, that's it. And they're from Greik. That, yeah, from the Graiki, yeah, because they're from Graikioi, because, you know, that place over there. Fast forward, the next time the Romans meet anyone from what we would call Greece, it's like, you guys are the Graiki, right? And you're like, nah, man, we're, we're Athenians. And he's like, you sure you ain't Graiki? You, sure? you sound like Graiki. Like, nah, dude, I'm from Athens. And this guy over here is from Corinth. We're, we're not Graiki. from Sparta. Yeah, he's weird. But, you know, he's, when he's not still not Graiki, the Romans just kind of like, think about it for a second. Like, you're Graiki. You're Graiki. Yeah, you are. You got confused. And now in the first takes of this podcast, you actually uh, had a really good metaphor about how European colonizers and Native Americans. Oh, yeah, with the Native Americans. So they would like come across one tribe and they would say, who's that other tribe? And the tribe they were speaking to would be like, oh, that's the so-and-so. But then you'd actually learn that's not what that tribe was called. It's what that tribe called them. And it usually meant something like enemy or foe. Mm. Um, yeah. Or how a bunch of white people come over and say, you guys are Indians, right? This is India, right? And they're, and they're like, what's an in India? They're like, yep. yeah, y'all are we Indians. Did it, guys. Yeah, Yeah. So it. humans have been doing this crap for a long time. We made it. So Greek culture is really Hellenic culture. And Hellenistic refers to the influence of Greek culture. Uh, we can keep using the terms Greek and Greece just because they're so deeply rooted in the convention that it's kind of impossible to undo it. But mm. at least now we know the truth behind where those words come from. We know what we've done. We know what we've done. <laughs> All right. Now, going into Greece itself, because if Alexander kicks off the Hellenistic world with his expansion of Greek culture... Well, what was going on in Greece before then? His dad. His dad. 
Well, let's set the stage a little bit. Greece before Alexander the Great. Now, I'm really, you're going to be so proud of me right now. I'm you, looking at you're the you're seeing this. page, and yeah. it's very bulleted. Yes, it is. But you remember last time I said I had it bulleted, and it still turned out to be an hour? Yeah. Okay, here's the deal. Watch this. I'm going to do something that's just so painful and just go past it with a quick summary, which is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Okay, so how did we get here? What did Greece look like? How does one Greece? Greece is comprised of a bunch of city-states at this point. Now, the word for city-state is, do you remember, Meredith? No. Polis. Ooh. P-O-L-I-S. And when we're talking about city-states, the idea of like Athens and Sparta and Corinth, they're individual cities, but they are functioning, functionally. Yeah, they're fully autonomous. Yeah. They are their own yeah, thing. Yeah, for our purposes, we could think of them politically as just being like separate nations with their own laws, yeah. their own government, their own military, their own, uh, you know, uh, currency, all that. Yep. Now, between 1200 to 800, the Greeks are going through a rough time, what we would call the Greek Dark Ages. And that's going to be the period where you want to think about the Iliad and the Odyssey and Odysseus and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Bad times. Bad around, times. Bad times, man. Around 800, things are looking better. Good. For any number of reasons, the Greek population is growing and expanding and believe it or not, back then, they thought they were running out of room. And so they start colonizing throughout the Mediterranean. We have the rise of the big city-states as a result. So people like Athens and Sparta mm -hmm. and Thebes and Corinth and even Syracuse. Now, let me give you two rules for the Greeks. Okay. And this is for ancient Greece, for God's sakes. I'm not saying anything about modern Greeks. Two rules in ancient Greece. The Greeks hate each other oh. and... For everything else, Sparta is the exception. All right. All right. So 800, Greece is flourishing. Around 500, roughly, the Greeks get into a big scrap with Persia. Oh. The biggest chunk of that war lasts for 20 years. When it's all done and Persia withdraws, after 480 to around the mid-300s, around 130 years, there's nonstop warfare in Greece. They're just constantly fighting themselves. Oh, and they're fighting with each other yeah. now that Persia's gone. Yes. Hmm. And Persia, you know, is there is here and there, and then yeah. they get involved in it, throwing some money around, and like dance puppets. <laughs> but by and large, it's just the Greeks fighting the Greeks. And that really, that is the part where you need to be proud of me because what followed from there was about five pages of notes that I somehow thought I could get through in a few minutes, and I just cut it all out. I know. So, I heard the first and second attempt. Oh, you were there. Yeah. So, and then in 338, Macedon jumps in and cleans it up. That's where we're going to pick up after these messages, or rather, we're going to take a break and go talk to some friends and eat some dinner. And eat some food. Eat some food, and then we come back, the rise of Macedon. See, I'm just skipping over Greece entirely. But I'm proud of you. Thank you. Okay, and we're back. Hello, Meredith. Hello, Dustin. So this is uh, even take three of take... Four point something, I don't know. No, this is just, this isn't even take two, it's just part two. No, I mean of me getting started right now. Oh, yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, after a brief skirmish with testing audio levels and stuff, we're going to try to do it. All right. Do Where it. we left off was the rise of Macedon. Mm -hmm. Now, we're just going to jump right into that. Yeah. Remember how last time I was so proud of myself for being so succinct? Yeah. We'll see how mm -hmm. that holds up. Okay. But I will be pretty quick. Now, Macedon is to the north of Greece. It has legendary origins. Now, they themselves believe that they are tied from the Greeks. 
For instance, the Macedonian monarchy, the kings of Macedon, believe that they, or the, the dynasty that Alexander's part of is the Argiad dynasty, which is to say that they believe that they are descended from the Greek city of Argos, which is actually near Sparta. Now, whether or not we want to... Like the Argonauts? Um, I don't know. And I'm sorry for that. What are... What is this all for? What, if all what is this all what are, for? What are all your degrees for? I'm asking myself that question right now. <laughs> um, but let's talk about some historical origins. From what we can tell, they're similar to other Balkan peoples north of Greece, people like the Illyrians, the Epirots, the Thracians in modern-day Bulgaria, people the Greeks would call barbarians. From what we can tell, uh, the, the basic existence in, in uh, Macedon was uh, some farming, but mainly pastoralism and hunting. So it's a mountainous region, but there's a lot of natural resources, timber and mining. The soil and the landscape of Macedon isn't really that conducive to big farms. Not like it is in Greece anyway, but even less so with Macedon. It's worse there. Yes. Gotcha. <laughs> that was not really eloquent. Um, now, although the, the Macedonians absolutely would claim uh, some sort of uh, affinity or affiliation to the, with the Greeks, we do have evidence of distinct cultural elements in Macedon. So, for instance, we know that there was a Macedonian language. We don't have much evidence for it, but we have references to it in the sense that some people could speak to other people in Macedonian. The names of a lot of Macedon Macedonian generals and later kings are clearly not Greek. Yeah. Um, but, and they, we know they had different gods, but they also shared a lot of Greek gods, just okay. like the Romans did. We know that there was the aristocratic culture was heavily influenced by like Homeric culture, which is to say that they were all about displays of excellence and warrior virtue and things like that. What you would see in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Oh, okay. Yeah, whereas... Where you had like kind of individual heroes. It wasn't yes. so much like about the army. Yeah. But again, so we have influence or a, you know, a sharing with Greek culture from the very beginning. For instance, even though we know that there was another Macedonian language... There's evidence of Greek writing as early as the 700s. They adopted the Greek pantheon, which similarities with Greek art. The way we should look at that is that the Macedonians were on the cusp of the Greek and non-Greek world. Now, here's the significance here. This is like take five. If we were to ask the question of, are the Macedonians Greek? We in the modern period, would see that as kind of an arbitrary question. And for God's sakes, I am not trying to ascribe anything to modern Macedonian society. But... In the ancient perspective, here's the answers you would get. To the Macedonians, they would say, well, yeah, we're definitely Greeks, or we're, you know, cus cousins of the Greeks. If you ask the Greeks, they would say, well, the Macedonians are not exactly barbarians, but they're not Greeks either. They're the cousins you don't like to acknowledge. They are absolutely the cousins you, might, you don't like to acknowledge. And I've got in here in my notes, they're semi-barbarians, or we, in our modern parlance, might understand it as hillbillies. Rednecks. In fact, the etymology of the name Macedonian might mean Highlander. Oh. Yes, like, or hill person. Oh. Yeah. So definitely hillbillies. Yeah, right. <laughs> but again, for God's sakes, I'm not saying anything about modern ethnic identity with Macedonians and Greeks, because that's, um, that's a can of Pringles I don't want to pop. 
<laughs> you like that? I like that. Okay. All right, let's talk about the government structure a little bit. And as I've told you before, this actually is going to play into a lot of what we're going to see with Alexander's successors because most of them occupied some element of this very rudimentary governmental structure in, Macedo in the Macedonian monarchy. All right. Okay. So you do have a king at the top. All right. Someone, you know, in the, using the Greek word again, Basileos. But the the king in Macedon is not an absolutist ruler, as we're going to see. It's kind of a feudal relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, he has to contend with his nobles, and yeah. he has decentralized power, and yeah. really as much he really don't hasn't as much power as he has influence. Yeah, you told me one time it's like a first among equals yes. type of thing. Yeah, and we're going to see that because basically what that means with the first among equals things is that. It's these, always up for grabs. And these nobles really think that they can mouth off to the king, and they have that, they have that privilege to mouth off to the king. Mm. But surrounding the king, you have several figures who really form this rudimentary bureaucracy. Royal pages, basilicoi paides, which are like young nobles with no direct role, often political hostages, somebody you keep around to make sure that their dad doesn't betray you. Like Theon. From Game of Thrones. Indeed, yes, like the Jan Greyjoy. They can serve as servants, you know, minor politicians, courtiers, or officers in training. You want to think also similar to interns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're just kind of getting started in their career. Getting their education. That's right. Going to take it back home someday. Now, this is another area of my notes that I have, uh, since the first three takes of this episode, tried to condense for you. Beyond these uh, interns... You do have several figures who are associates of the king. Among these are the bodyguards, the somatophilakes, the companions, the hetairoi, and even something as informal as his friends, his philoi. These people would be an inner circle, and they would always be advisors to the king. They might be generals. They might serve as governors. But really, with the bodyguards, they absolutely just hung around the king. There are yeah. several occasions where we know, for instance, Alexander almost got killed because he's stupid, and one of his bodyguards saved his life. Aww. A lot of these bodyguards are going to show up later after Alexander died. These Hetairoi and these Somatophila case, a lot of these people are going to end up being some of the Hellenistic kings we are looking at. Okay. Or even the Philoi, and there's one guy, Eumenes, which was, who was absolutely Alexander's secretary, and he became one of the most powerful generals in you know, the post-Alexander world. But that just sounds like the Macedonian dream. You know, you do your internship, mm -hmm. the boss retires and yeah. or dies. Yeah. And then you try and get his job. Exactly. And if he's not ready to retire, you retire him. Yeah. With a knife in the back. Oh, I was thinking like a nice dinner and you talk him around to seeing it's his tenure's up and he should just retire to the countryside. Well, you see, you said talk him up and get and convince him to retire at a nice dinner. But I'm sitting here thinking, well, why wouldn't you just poison him? Stabby, stabby. Stabby, stabby, poison, poison. But as we're going to, as you're going to find out in our journey, Meredith, when someone asks you to dinner in the Hellenistic world. There's probably poison involved. And stabbing. And stabbing. Yes, indeed. So as I said, these monarchs are limited. There's decentralization of authority in Greece. Mm -hmm. In Macedon, sorry. This Homeric aristocratic king. Yeah, he has a lot of power and influence. He's an overlord or head of state, commander-in-chief. He's in charge of foreign policy and diplomacy. He's really a chief judge and an arbiter. So if you've got a problem, yo, he'll solve it. Well, there you go, yeah. Most Macedonian kings... And Hellenistic kings are going to have what's called a diadem, just a little silk band they would just tie around their, their, uh, the top of their head. 
Now, the king was the social nucleus of court. He was the one who granted land and benefits and gifts to his subjects. He also threw a lot of symposia, which we were talking about earlier because we were watching HBO's Rome. Mm -hmm. And symposium is... It's not an academic conference. It is a party. Yeah, it's real much of a kegger. Now, there might be some some philosophical discussion at these symposia, but everyone's getting hammered. Yeah, it's like as the wine flows, we're all philosophers. Indeed. Now, the government was decentralized. The monarch had to contend with his nobles. Like I said, this is um, similar to feudalism. So the powerful aristocrats are like lesser tribal petty kings who had rights and privileges and pledged loyalty to the king. And like you said, the king of the the Basileus was the first among equals. So they had to do what he said, but he had to listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. And if he pushed too hard, he could compromise their loyalty and and their cooperation. Nevertheless, the the, uh, Macedonians do operate on the premise of uh, primogenitor succession. So eldest son is, is by default going to be the successor. Okay. Uh, by assumption. But also this charismatic legitimacy, as we're going to see, like when a new king is crowned, oftentimes it's the nobles and or the army who are actually the ones to acclaim and, and recognize that king's legitimacy as a ruler. Yeah. So in theory, we'll go with the first son, but it's not so set in stone that if he just stinks right we and can't he, switch it around and if he's a doofus the, the army might yeah and he, they might well he, actually here here's the only look at it. if he's a doofus the army might say no we're not following that yeah, guy that's not good furthermore but even if the king is a doofus and some of the you know the higher ups want to get rid of him if, if the, the army, army wants him to yeah. be king he's gonna be king all right so that's Macedon, a lesser power in Greek politics for a long time. They're in the backwoods. They actually, when the Persians came through in 480, like Macedon actually immediately surrendered to Persia. Good boy. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, who can blame them, but it's not, but this just should like, this should demonstrate to us, like, we should not think of Macedon as this huge powerhouse. It's yeah. Hulking over Greece the entire time. No, just like, like pop up and look over the hill. It's like. No. <laughs> go on through. I was like, you guys go ahead. It's just Macedon. We're not doing We're anything. not part of Greece at all. No, actually. no, we're not Greece. We got our own language. We got our own gods. gods. <laughs> That's when they point out that they're different from they're the like, Greeks. Take down the statue of Athena. Take now, it down. Take it down. Throw a carpet over it. <laughs> it's like, oh, we just picked this up at Walmart. From we looting. Have no, you have no idea who that is. All right, so. That's it for today. Next time, we're going to continue to set the stage by discussing Philip II, Alexander the Great's father, which will also be an opportunity to give our ranking system a trial run. And if you enjoy the show, give us a five-star rating or review. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can follow us on Facebook at the Alexander Standard Podcast or on Instagram at Alexander Standard Pod. Or you can also email us at alexanderstandardpod at gmail.com. All right. And this has been the Alexander Standard.